Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. As always, if there's anything you want us to cover on the podcast, do let us know and get in touch on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. We have a great episode for you today. There are so many books being released at the moment. You'll have seen them all being advertised, hundreds of them. And there are some real gems in there, including one by the writer who I spoke to for this episode. The Nothing Man is a terrifying novel about a serial killer in Cork who one of his victims, the only survivor from a gruesome attack on her family, is trying years later to track him down and bring him to justice. It's clever and it's scary and it's another very original work of fiction from Catherine Ryan Howard. Obviously, we talked about The Nothing Man, but our conversation went into lots of other areas, including her thoughts on being child free, which I think is something we need to hear more about in a world where there are so many assumptions made about women and motherhood. She's a really interesting person who has been hugely successful in her work, and I think you're going to find her as engaging as I did. Here she is, Catherine Ryan Howard. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Before we get on to your absolutely brilliant new book, The Nothing Man, um, I want to ask you about lockdown and how you've been coping and also about creativity in lockdown, because that's really interesting with writers. So how have you been getting on? Well, bad for the coping and good for the creativity is what I would say. Basically, I was living in the world's smallest apartment. It was about the size. People always think I'm exaggerating, but it truly was the size of about two car parking spaces. And for six years, I loved it. I was so happy there. But I found out during lockdown that was because I was never actually physically there. I was always traveling and, you know, back to pack a suitcase and away again. So as soon as lockdown ended, I moved apartments. I just had to get out. And, you know, that really was the biggest change for me during lockdown was that I just had to upsize. Catherine, tell me a bit about that, like about that feeling being in the world's smallest apartment and what it did to you being so confined and living on your own. Do you live on your own? Yeah, I think that was the key is that I was on my own and um, I was very, very conscientious. So I wasn't going to be breaking any of the rules or anything like that. So I, you know, I have great friends and I was in contact with people constantly, but I was physically on my own. And the big thing, and like ironically, the problem ended up being the proximity of other people because everyone else in the complex was home too. And instead of having a lovely, quiet place where, you know, we used to joke about how quiet my place was, that it was like, you know, you wouldn't know anyone else was alive or dead in the building. But suddenly it was like living in the middle of a city park. I would wake up in the morning and there would be people doing star jumps outside my window, facing into my window so they could watch themselves in their reflection and you know parties and noise and so it was weird because I love being by myself that didn't really bother me at all but it ended up being you know unable to get away from all these other people (laughs) that gave me the idea in the end that I just I just had to move and I think a big part of it as well was that there was no outside space that was just my own and I think you know the universe just had such a laugh and gave us amazing weather while we were all trapped inside And I just needed somewhere where I could go out in the morning. And even if it was just a little balcony, that just to be mine outside in the fresh air away from other people. So it was kind of, it was a weird experience. I found lockdown really interesting. I think in years to come, you know, if you read a lot of like American memoirs, you start to see a theme of people changing their life after 9-11. And I think we will see a similar thing after this because it was like a sort of perverse 
game of musical chairs. Like I am someone who very much lives in the future. I'm always like thinking six months down the line, a year down the line. And when lockdown came, it was like the music stopped and whatever chair you were near, you had to sit on and that was that. And I think a lot of people got a shock at the chair they ended up sitting on. So it really kind of changed the way I think. And I think moving forward, I will be moving forward a lot quicker in certain things. Instead of assuming that things will be exactly the same this time next year and all the rules will be the same and I will have the same opportunities. I think I have a new sense of urgency you know, with writing and with everything else that I, there's so much I want to achieve and God, I'm going to need a lot of coffee to get going on at all. <laughs> I think what you've just said there, a lot of people will relate to, I'm, I'm feeling it myself. And I think it's a really good lesson to take from this. They're just, you don't know. We, we should have known that anyway. Life is very uncertain. We never know what's going to happen, but we kind of have an idea in our heads that, you know, things yeah. will tick along. But COVID definitely showed us that things can be upended and turned around and twisted. Yeah, Um, and upended by something that none of us were possibly expecting. Like we all have a little voice at the back of our heads that says, I may get ill, someone I love may get ill, I might lose my job. You know, all the things that we expect, but none of us anticipated this global crisis, you know, that changed everything. And I think, you know, there's a lesson, as you said, for us all that we just need to be more conscious of the fact that nothing is promised it never was but now it's in our faces that that is true well then talk to me about something maybe happier because you sounded like it worked well some people couldn't read a book some people who were writers found it very difficult looking at the blank page but you got a bit of a creative spurt going on spurt might be um (laughs) overstating the (laughs) overstating what happened I very much was one of these people who couldn't read a book I think I've read three books since probably March mid-March like so so bad with reading I just completely lost my attention span but where it did work out for me let's hope fingers crossed is that I was writing a book about uh, my fifth novel which was going to be about a shooting and at the start of March I would have been sitting down to start that first draft um and I found like I'm someone like who does not enjoy writing anyway. It's you know something that I have to get out of the way. I hate the first draft with an absolute passion. I would edit until the cows come home, but the first draft is really difficult for me. So half of me was kind of thinking, are you just using the pandemic as an excuse? But really, I couldn't concentrate because everyone in the book was doing things they were not allowed to do. Like it was so far away from my reality. And I always try to make my books really realistic. So I had an idea in the back of my head for a long time about a couple meeting where everything is not what it seems. And then I heard the deputy health minister in the UK say to new couples, the advice was either move in together or break up and not see each other until after lockdown because you couldn't mix um, outside of households. And I just thought that was such an interesting idea because if you had two people who had just met being forced into living together for a crime writer you have the perfect scenario going on around them they're not at work they're not seeing their friends and family I know if I had done such a thing I wouldn't have bothered telling anyone because they would have thought I was crazy you know I just would have like no one would have known and so I got a whole new idea for a whole new book which I'm almost finished writing the first draft of now so I don't want to call it a lockdown novel but it does take, it does take place during lockdown I'm just hoping that you know by the time it comes out which will be this time next year at least people won't be like I never want to hear about this again but like no one is getting sick no one is getting tested it's not anything to do with the actual disease it's to do with the scenario of moving in with someone in these exceptional circumstances and what unfolds then and is it sort of thinking you know someone and you don't it turns out you don't that kind of thing I mean that's probably a good description of almost every crime novel like there is there is certainly an element of that but there's a bigger uh, I wish I, I love the way you yes Roisin that would be a common theme in crime books <laughs> I, I wish I could get away with just doing that but I need to come up with a bigger twist than that than that I'm afraid five books in so something else is going on that is just it, basically the theme of the book is that lockdown has presented a perfect opportunity for something to occur and uh 
just have to work out the final details and finish the book. You know the way you said you find the writing difficult and you don't like it and the first draft is the worst. Did, did Was this different? Did Was it different at all being so having so much, no distractions, I suppose, being much more on your own, not much to do except Zoom calls or whatever, you know, did that help or did that make it more torturous? Roisin, you're just describing my normal life. Like I live alone. I have no dependence. I write full time. And usually what I do is I write quite quickly. So during the usually like 12 weeks of the year where I'm writing a first draft, that's all I'm doing. So, you know, I can't pretend that lockdown provided an opportunity I didn't have before. Um, I was just doing what I normally do, write a bit, watch loads of Netflix. Um, so <laughs> it was just the same. It was just the same. Okay. I, I was just glad that I could write at all. And I really couldn't write until I switched the idea. And I felt a lot more like, because I was, I was in the center of Dublin, right? So even when we were down to two kilometers, I was able to walk through the city. And it was such a disquieting, disconcerting experience, the things that, you know, just to see the city like that. And I remember one day, it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And I walked down to Grand Canal Dock and I kind of forgot. I forgot for a few minutes what was going on. And then I turned the corner and there was a Navy ship parked there that was being used as a testing center. And just at that moment, there was three, I assume, Naval officers in full biohazard gear um, with their sprayers spraying down the decks of the ship with disinfectants. And then there was two photographers trying to capture this, obviously for some newspaper. And it was so like cognitive dissonance. Like it just didn't make any sense. You know, I was doing what I normally do, walk around a sunny Dublin and then turn the corner and be met with that. Um, another thing was the cranes in the sky. Like they were the stopped clocks to me. Like everything just, came to a halt and so I would be out seeing these things and then scurrying home and adding the detail to the draft you know so in that way I kind of felt like creatively lockdown fed me now did I also watch approximately a thousand hours of Netflix yes but (laughs) I did get some writing done too so well, I love that idea. I love that idea of you going out and getting those little COVID nuggets, coming back, squirreling them away, then watching loads of Netflix and, you know, doing your little bit every day. Roisin, it's basically my dream life. Like, no social engagements, <laughs> nothing to do. <laughs> Brilliant. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. Well, listen... I have to tell you, I know about you from your self-publishing, which um, is just sort of how you started. And we'll talk about that later on. Yeah. But I had your book on my desk. Uh, it's a couple of weeks ago, I think. And I was I think I was about to go to bed and I just picked it up and I hadn't scheduled an interview with you at this point. But I picked it up, this book called The Nothing Man. And it doesn't happen very often. But, you know, when you pick a book up, some listeners will know what I mean. And within the pe- first page, suddenly... Everything else that you were going to do or wanted to do is sort of gone. And all you need to do and want to do is is read the on because you need to know what the hell is going on. And I mean, that's no, I can't give you a bigger compliment about The Nothing Man, really, because I mean, people talk about page turners and, you know, I couldn't put it down and all that, but I couldn't. I, I read it till I think half one in the morning and I then I was so scared and stuff, but I was, you know, I was grand in the end. But during the book, I'm sitting there on my own and everyone in the house is in bed and I'm just sitting there going, ah, terrified. It is a brilliant book. Can you tell everyone about the premise of it? Which is, I think it's ingenious. And I think that's what kept me going. I don't normally fall in love with crime books. It's not my thing. But I think it was the cleverness of what you did in terms of the plot. And I'd love to know how you came up with it and just just tell people a bit about it. Okay, so The Nothing Man, the simplest way to explain it is that it's half a true crime memoir that I made up and half the killer's reaction to it as he reads. Um, You're essentially reading the true crime memoir, which is utterly complete. It has its own title page and copyright notice and everything. And acknowledgements. And acknowledgements, which I'm in. Um, (laughs) you're reading that over the killer's shoulder 20 years after his last offense. He's never been caught. I got the idea because I read Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark just a week after 
uh, Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested in California. So I read the book being able to solve a lot of the mysteries that tragically McNamara didn't live to see solved. You know, I knew like she was posing questions in the book, like, was he a cop? Was he this, that? And I knew the answers. But by the time I got to the end, I had this absolutely burning question that I couldn't answer, which was, had he read the book? Because there was a two month lag between it debuting at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, it had huge publicity, he couldn't have not heard about it, and him being arrested. And we know from when he was active as a killer, he paid hugely close attention to his own press. So I have never been able to prove this, but I am convinced, I heard Edna O'Brien say in an interview years ago, she was talking about her novel, um, Into the Forest, um, that she writes as a way to grieve for what she reads in the headlines. And I felt like I was writing this book as a way to solve a mystery that the headlines had presented to me. It's not based on him. There's certainly similarities between the Golden State Killer and the Nothing Man. But honestly, I think you couldn't make up the Golden State Killer because it's an evil that is beyond the imagination. Jim is not that bad. He's bad, but he's not that bad. Um, but that is that is the experience that gave me the idea. I love to do something different every time. Novel means new. Every time I'm sitting down to write a novel, I'm trying to make something new and different. And one thing that I usually play around with is form and structure. And so as soon as I, I think in the first draft, it was extracts from the true crime book. And then I just was like, this isn't pushing it far enough. I want, I'm going to make my publishers so happy because they love loads of formatting problems and all this to solve. I want to put the whole book in there and have the experience of reading it along with the killer. So just, it's about, um, the, the person who's written this crime memoir is Eve Black, who, when she was 12, was the only member of her family to survive this horrific attack in her home. So her parents and her um, sibling, her little sister, were all killed by this nothing man who who was a serial killer in Cork, um, which you made up, obviously, so it's a fiction. Yes. <laughs> just keep saying that again. It's a novel, yeah. like you say. But... Then we also get to see him in his crappy job in a supermarket as a security man. He's an ex-guard. I think it's okay to say that because it's... Yep, there's no, there's no spoilers, no spoilers. Yeah, there's because no spoilers. everything is up front. So he sees this book that this woman, Eve, has written about being that person surviving this horrific attack and what she remembers. And of course, 20 years later, he's terrified that somehow she might have found out something about him. And the reason he's called the nothing man is because... The guards were completely um, puzzled by it, never found any trace of him, never found any anything to pin anybody to these series of horrible crimes around the city. So it's just an incredible, it feels like the growing tension is that Eve has written this book and somehow you kind of think, is she trying to catch this guy? And does she sort of know that by writing this book, she might draw him out into the open? And so we get to see him in his family life and we get to hear his reminiscences of being this serial killer. And then he picks up the book and we're back into Eve's life and Eve's journey through that whole thing. I mean, I think that's why it's so um, gripping in that way, because, yeah, it's the fact that he's reading over our shoulder and it's kind of that's so scary or something, even though he's older now and you don't really necessarily think he's going to be capable of doing anything again. But it, the tension is very high and it's uh, it's so skillfully done and it's so real for something that like, you know, I don't know. It, it, you, you said earlier on you like to do things that are very realistic. I think that's why as well I was so enthralled by it because I could kind of picture it and I could imagine it. And you use a lot of newspaper headlines and there's a journalism aspect to it and there's all those things. I am obsessed with true crime myself, as in like reading the books and watching the documentaries. And I went to college as a mature student. I went when I was 32, which means I graduated two years ago. And for my final year project, um, for some reason, they changed the rules. You didn't have to do a dissertation. You could write 10,000 words of narrative nonfiction. And I decided to write um, kind of a sort of true crime literary investigation piece. My supervisor was Carlo Gabler. And I learned so much doing that, that I brought all that into this book. I have read uh, loads of books within books. And you can absolutely tell that the same writer has written both sections because, of course, they have. So, you know, you can see how it happens. I wanted people to feel like I had been possessed by another writer 
I wanted the nonfiction sections to read as real. I wanted people to forget that I had made it up. And the way to do that is to put in, you know, as many real details as possible. Like I, I've seen so many reviews where people were like, I had to Google it to see like, did it, did it really happen? <laughs> no, Cork did not have a serial killer at the turn of the millennium. I can say that for certain. Um, but, you know, that's what I really, really worked hard to do was to make it feel utterly real because that's that's the scariest thing of all. Like, that's why true crime is so terrifying, because it really did happen. And I wanted to keep Jim a huge thing that was important to me was to keep him realistic. The idea of serial killers that we see in the media, in Hollywood movies, you know, Hannibal Lecter does not exist. That is not what a serial killer is like. Um, a lot of the things we think about them are misconceptions. They are not particularly exceptionally intelligent. You know, they, in terms of race and gender, they kill and, uh, you know, based on the population they're in. There's just loads of things that we think serial killers are capable of that they're not. They're just losers. And so, you know, the nothing man name, a friend of mine suggested it to me. And originally I was thinking that's because there's no leads, there's no evidence, whatever. But by the time I got towards the end of the first draft, he had become a bunch of nothing. Like he had become ultimately a loser who had never done anything else in his life except take other people's lives. And that was something I wanted to really push in this book as well. And and we really get to see that because he has this, as I said, crappy job in a supermarket. He's, he's not happy in it. He has a really annoying boss who he can't stand because he feels like he's better because he has this arrogance. And at home we see him. And I thought that was very, very well done as well. A sort of coercive control storyline in his house where he's an abusive husband, but in the ways that are that are not necessarily, you know, hitting somebody or, or the yeah. traditional domestic abuse. And it's something that we're hearing a lot more about emotional abuse, controlling where somebody in their own home, like Jim's wife, just feels they have no agency and no power. And 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 that's how this, you know, retired serial killer um, kind of gets his kicks now, you know, by by dominating um, this this woman who's just had decades of it from him, you know, um, and that was really well done, too. But listen, I, I, apart from telling everyone that to go and get this book, because if you need oh, some... We, we can keep talking about how brilliant the book is, Russian. <laughs> I'll come back to it later. But, <clears throat> yeah, you know, at the moment, I think we've gone past the bit, bit where we can't read books. I think we're in the bit now where we, we just need distraction. Everything's yeah. so confusing. We don't know if there's an end in sight. You know, this idea that it's going to be over by X time, we've had to park that... It, you know, lockdown or no lockdown coming again, all that sort of stuff. So if you just want to forget about everything for a few hours, if you're like me, you'll just do it in a few hours because I couldn't wait to get to the end. This is the book to get, I'm telling you now. But I really want to talk to you, Catherine, about... It's interesting that you went back to college at 32, you know, um, because you obviously had this I writing, I just, I want to do it and I'm going to get better at it. Very single-minded. Talk to me about growing up in Cork, um, where there wasn't a serial killer, let's remind everyone, but um, growing up there and writing and kind of your first memories of wanting to put words on the page or, or of wanting to kind of express yourself that way. I absolutely always wanted to be a writer. I work with a framed picture on my desk of me, I think eight, eight and a half. It's Christmas morning. Barbie's pink magic camper van, which was the greatest toy ever, is off to one side and I'm tapping away on the typewriter that I asked Santa to bring me. Like I remember telling stories. I remember when we were in junior infants, uh, the teacher would sit up on the desk and like have a picture book and like show us the pictures and she'd read to us. And I would go home and I'd climb up on my dressing table, line up my Barbies and Cindy's and like quote unquote read a book to them. Like I was always storytelling at some point I'm sure that morphed into lying but that is also telling stories um, <laughs> I just always always wanted to do this um then I read Jurassic Park when I was 11 or some of it because you can't read about chaos theory and genetics when you're 11 but I was so blown away by that book and people think this is hilarious but you should read Jurassic Park it's an amazing book I was so blown away by the fact that someone had sat down and made that up and that that was his job. I just couldn't get over that. And I was like, that is what I want to do. Then I got a bit distracted by wanting to be a virologist for a little while, which is something I'm glad now that I did not get involved in. Um, I wrote my first novel when I was 
studying or supposed to be studying for my leaving cert and the novel was about studying for your leaving cert that didn't go anywhere obviously then I I was desperate I was desperate to get published but I never did any writing loved talking about it loved reading about it never actually did any writing or had a good idea for a novel which it turns out are two crucial elements of trying to be a published author so I went away in my 20s and I had adventures. I worked in the Netherlands, I worked in France briefly, and then I went to work in Walt Disney World in Florida. And while I was there, I started writing about my experiences. And, you know, for the first time, I thought maybe I'll write some nonfiction, like until I have an idea for a novel. So that became mousetrapped. I came back to Ireland in the summer of 2008. My timing was impeccable. And started, you know, working on that book and trying to get it published. Everyone gave me the same feedback, which was that, you know, we enjoyed reading it, but there's no market for a book about an Irish girl going to work in Disney. And even now I agree with that. But self-publishing was just coming into its own. And, you know, instead of paying thousands to have boxes of dusty books under your stairs, you could publish ebooks, you could publish a paperback and you'd only get charged once someone ordered it. So to cut a long story short, I self-published Mousetrapped. It went really well. I was very much right place, right time. Self-published another book about the backpacking I did afterwards, then self-published the obligatory how to self-publish a book. Um, And, you know, that led to a lot of amazing opportunities. I was doing talks and, you know, getting to go to book festivals and stuff like that. And it was all fine, but I was still not in the place I wanted to be. I had finally, luckily, had an idea for a thriller. When you say you had an idea for a thriller, so you did Mousetrap, you did your couch surfing, you know, that kind of backpacking one. You did the how to publish a book. Did you always know that what when you did venture into fiction that it would be in the, the crime or thriller genre? Was that in your head? I should have known that because crime was what I loved. I always say crime fiction. Just assume I mean fiction and not actually out committing crime. Um, (laughs) or do I but I always loved that and you know the best advice I ever got was write the book you want to read but can't find on the shelf but I was so desperate to get published that I was willing to write anything that I thought would get me there Um, and so for those years where I was self-publishing I was trying to write and what I was writing was things like women's commercial fiction which like I don't read necessarily and therefore couldn't write because my heart wasn't in it I wasn't familiar with the genre you know I thought it was easy it turns out it's the hardest thing ever um I'd much rather write crime (laughs) kill a few people but it you know I was writing the wrong thing and then my mother has this habit now these days she sends you links but back then she would actually give you the physical paper or clipping or whatever she'd pick up other people's newspapers and things that they left behind in cafes and if there was something interesting she'd bring it home and she brought me home a copy of the Guardian's Weekend magazine from November 2011. And the cover story was Lost at Sea by John Ronson. And it was the story of a Disney cast member, which is Disney Speak for Employee, who disappeared from a Disney cruise ship. And she brought me it because she thought Disney, you know, I'd be interested in, in reading it. But halfway through that article, which I was honestly skimming because I was like, 99% of the stuff she brings you, you're like, I don't really have an interest in that. But this time... This time I forgave all because halfway through, I caught this phrase, International Cruise Victims Association. I'd never been on a cruise, but when I thought of them, I thought of like the worst thing that could happen to you is that you get, uh, you know, an upset stomach. Now it's different, but back then upset stomach was the worst thing. And I started Googling and I found out that this loophole exists in maritime law where if you go on a cruise ship and it's in international waters, it's exactly the same as going to a country with no police. And I found out all this horrible stuff, like at the time, 200 people had disappeared without trace in the last 10 to 15 years on cruise ships. I read a statistic, I don't know how true it is, but at the time it stopped me in my tracks that the average cruise ship has a sexual crime rate 50% higher than the average American city. Just like all this crazy stuff. And so the crime reader in me, aspiring to be a crime writer, thought if I was going to commit a murder, I would do it on a cruise ship. That is my best chance of getting away with it. And that was where the spark started. And when I sat down to write that book, it was almost like an audible click. 
I realized I had been totally doing the wrong thing, cynically trying to write something that I thought would get me published. I needed to write the book I wanted to read. And we were sort of, we were off to the races in terms of actually writing the book, but we had a bit of a way to go to publication by that stage. <laughs> I, I, I just love your description of that. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, about creativity. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like that. You know, you, you found a little thread and once you started following it, you were so passionate about it. It led you on almost, we won't say effortlessly because everything takes hard work and effort, but because you were in it and feeling it, it, it made it happen. So then talk to me about um, finding a publisher because, okay, you had this great idea and you were you were executing it, but, you know. But I was only executing it to a point. So once we got to about 30,000 words, now at the time, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I couldn't figure out why I just couldn't keep writing, why I was so stuck at this point in the book. What I understand now, looking back, is that I was afraid because I was in a place where I thought I had an amazing idea and I could potentially like get everything I wanted with it. But if I kept going, I would have to send it out and I could be told it's crap, you're crap, this is never going to happen. And I, it was much nicer to stay where I was in the bubble of possibility. So in order to try and drag myself out of it, I started sending the the bit I had written to a number of agents in um, in the UK mainly. And because I had what I thought was a stellar CV of, you know, stuff from self-publishing, I honestly, like, it's so funny to think about it now. I thought they won't even have to read the pages. They'll be like, snap her up. Like, we need her on the books. Of course, that's not what happened. So the summer of 2014, spring, summer, I was getting rejections. And that's when I decided I just can't do this anymore. I can't pin my every happiness on something I have no control over. So I applied to Trinity to go and do English um, because I had never, I had lasted three weeks in college first time around, one week of which was freshers. So technically it was two weeks, dropped out and came home. And I didn't regret that because that was the wrong course for me, the wrong time in my life. But I always regretted not having the experience. And I felt like I wanted to do something else, give my life some balance so got into trinity in the meantime finished the book because now I knew I wasn't going to have any free time anymore and sent it off six weeks into my four-year degree I got an agent and six months later she got me my first book deal so my advice would be if you want something to happen go and do something else that will then make the happening of the other thing extremely stressful So you had sent the pages to this person and they had liked them. Is that what eventually happened? I was sitting in Fix, which is no longer there. It's now where the Ivy is um, on Dawson Street, looking out on a very rainy evening in October 2015. I think it was a Thursday. And I was checking my email and I got this email saying, thank you for sending us your book. And I had just like done this very cold. I had just gotten the email off the website of this agency and, and sent in the book. And she said... I haven't finished it, but please don't make any decisions. Let us know, like, you know, is it still available? And I was like, is it still available? (laughs) (laughs) It's the most available thing in the world. (laughs) But I didn't tell her that, obviously. So I was like, okay, like, you know, I'll wait. I'll give you the time to finish it. And then they came back the next day and said, we want to represent you. Then we spent six months doing another draft because that agent, my agent has an in-house editor and she very much isn't taking the time before it goes out. She sent it out on Thursday in March, the following March. And at one minute to one, I was on my way out the door to go to a romanticism lecture that I ended up never going to. The phone rang to say, we have a, a preempt for a two book deal with Atlantic Books and a sum of money then that like just didn't, you know, didn't even make sense to me at the time. Like it just... Can we talk about figures? Can we talk about the number of figures in that sum of money? Um, (laughs) Maybe so rude, Catherine. Well, you know what? I don't think it's rude because I wish that more writers did talk about money. And one thing I cannot stand about this country is that we love talking about the poverty stricken writer. And we have this idea that if you earn money from your writing, you know, that's selling out, that's not doing it for the sake of art. My attitude is, if you write a novel and it is not read, 
by other people. It is not a novel. It does not get to fulfill its destiny as a novel. I am in this because I want readers. And if you have readers, they are buying that book. Therefore, making money from your writing equals having readers. Um, so I make a full-time living from my writing. And there's no caveats to that. I don't have a partner supporting me. I don't live with my parents. You know, I don't have an, I don't teach like I'm able to do it. And I really wish, I know that I'm extremely lucky. I know it's an extremely privileged position. And I know that like at the start of my journey, I did live with my parents and I did have opportunities other people didn't have. But I don't see the point of telling writers from the get-go that you will never earn a living from this because what you are doing is conditioning them to say yes to doing things for free. So that's a very long way of saying, I won't tell you the actual figure, but I will say, it was a preempt, which is an exploding offer, which means like we want an answer now or this goes away. And the way I described it at the time is if you turned it into euro and you squinted, it was almost a six figure deal. <laughs> you are, you're very tricky. Okay. And I'll, I'll leave you to puzzle that out. Yeah, because I'm really bad at math. <laughs> Never mind visualizing squinting things. So, okay, I'm sure our listeners are much more clever than me. They'll have an idea. But it was it was an eye-watering amount for you and a life-changing amount for you. At the time, like I was doing some work for an Irish publisher, like doing their social media and stuff. And I would get paid once a month. And I had, that was fine in Cork. But I had just moved to Dublin and I was paying rent in, you know, Dublin for onto car parking spaces worth of space, but still quite expensive. When I got the call, I had 15 euros cash in my pocket and that was it. Like to allow, like I was going to get, I wasn't poverty stricken. I was going to get paid in a couple of days, but that's what I had. And then this person is saying in sterling high five figures for two books, we're giving it to you. I just couldn't compute the. I just couldn't compute the thing at the time. Honestly, you I never, remember walking through Stephen's Green and just being like, "What is happening?" <laughs> you never made the lecture anyway. That you were supposed. No, to. God, I, I don't think I went to a lecture for the rest of the term after that. <laughs> so tell us about the novels then. Since before the Nothing Man, this is your fourth thriller. So you had the one on the cruise ship. Yes, yeah, that was Distress Signals. Yeah. Um, my second novel was The Liar's Girl, which was um, set along the canal in Dublin because I'm extremely lazy and hate research. And that was outside my window. So I was like, that's where they're going. Um, the Liar's Girl was nominated for the Edgar for Best Novel. I, as far as I know, it's only me and Tana French in terms of Irish women who have been nominated for This that. is a big American award. award yeah, America. yeah, it's the Mystery Writers of America and that is like their top award. So it's kind of like best picture at the Oscars. That changed a lot of things for me, um, especially in the States. And, you know, it's such a huge deal to me and it means so much that I mention it at every possible opportunity. I get them there. Say <laughs> the name of the award again so we can... The Edgar for Best Novel. Okay. So that's, that just meant a lot to me because when I was growing up and I was reading like, you know, Patricia Cornwell and Michael Conley and all these people, the same award always came up in their bio and it was that. So, um, you know, whatever about advances and things like that, I'm, I'm definitely not over that news, even though it was a couple of years ago now. And then my third novel, Rewind, um, was set in East Cork. That came out this time last year and that uh, was I got the idea for that because I saw a post-secret image. So post-secret, if people are not familiar, is like a community art project where people write their deepest, darkest secrets on a postcard that is usually illustrated and then send it into this guy and he puts it online for the world to see. It's great for writers and there's amazing writing prompts in there. And I saw an image of a bedroom and the secret was I trade hidden sex cam videos with other Airbnb hosts. And I just, I was staying in a hotel at the time and was thankful that we had not gone to an Airbnb. But my thought was, if you were doing that and you got more than you bargained for, if you captured a murder on that video, you can't report it because you're revealing your own um, criminality. So wrote that book a few weeks ago. I was able to announce that Clark and Well films in, this is, this is really me just like totally going on an ego trip here this morning, but no Clark sense. and Well films um, have optioned it. Um, so hopefully we will see that on TV um, in 
the coming years. And uh, The Nothing Man also has supremely exciting news that I can't say anything about. Um, and we can't say another word about it or I will actually explode. But well, I'm, I'm just going to say <laughs> some words because I'm just going to say when I was reading it, I was thinking this is has to be a film. This is the most perfect film that could ever be made. I can just see it now. I'm with some amazing leads and actors. And I hope that's what you're talking about that you can't talk. I can about. neither confirm nor deny anything. <laughs> well, OK. Anyway, it's very exciting. Do you know what I'm loving talking to you, Catherine, is your ambition. Now, I don't I don't know. Ambition is a bit of a dirty word in Ireland. It's similar to what you talked about with the money thing. Um, and I think as well for women, a lot of the time, you have to be very humble. You have to be very self-effacing. You shouldn't really come on a podcast and you know talk about yourself and tell everyone. I'm great- actually sort of itching here already because I have just been talking about you know, oh, I got an an award nom and oh, I got, and I'm thinking, I hope people don't think I'm, you know, I'm a big deal. I hope people don't know, think I think that. Don't we need to get over ourselves and get over that? I mean, do you not think? I, I 100% do. And like, you absolutely are right that in Ireland, and again, this is associated with the money thing. It's like, you know, yeah, like have a book out and, you know, that's great. And I'm so lucky and God, I hope people buy it, but whatever. No, I'm sorry. Like I'm doing this. This is my career. Like I want to do this because it is the thing I love to do most in the world. And I will not get to continue to do it if I'm not successful. Like alas, publishing companies are not charitable organizations. So, you know, you have to be a viable author for them to continue getting published. Absolutely with women, there is, you know, a huge issue of of saying, this is what I want. This is what I'm aiming for. I love Jo Spain, another one of my lovely fellow Irish prime managers, because she says, I'm full of ambition and this is what I want. And I, she, I have never met anyone who works as hard as she does and puts in the hours she does and still manages to maintain this amazing quality and everything she produces like I you know look up to her like that's that's what I want and I don't think there's any shame in saying that you know I have ambition for myself and I'm going to keep going until I achieve the things because like I had three big dreams when I was a teenager right I wanted to write a novel and have it published I wanted to work in the states and I wanted to see a space shuttle launch and I managed to do all of those things by the time I was you know 33 I think I was when my first novel was published so I always felt like and my brother acts and so the two of us have had quite a similar you know upbringing in the sense that we joke that we were like salmon swimming upstream because everyone was we were here saying I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I want to be a novelist and everyone was like that's nice pat on the head but you're going to have to get a normal job like this is you know a dream not a career etc etc and I always was very good at completely ignoring everyone's advice if it didn't fit in with what I wanted to do because I just had I don't know where it came from but I just had this absolute certainty that this was going to happen for me um and I never like I remember one time right about the time I applied to Trinity and I was thinking you know maybe it's I just let a sliver of doubt into my head. Maybe this isn't going to happen or it's not going to happen the way I hope it does. And I tried to imagine myself at like 40 or 50 and this having not happened. And I actually couldn't do it. I couldn't even force my imagination to accept for two seconds that thought experiment of a scenario. Like I was just certain it was going to happen. And in this country, you know, I have two very good friends and unpaid therapists, Hazel Gaynor and Carmel Harrington. And we started something called the Inspiration Project, which started out as a sort of residential writing retreat. But then we went into sort of doing day workshops and stuff. And the point of that was there is so much negativity, I feel, in this country around writing. I have actually seen seminars advertised called How to Make a Living as a Writer and then what they're about is how you're not going to make a living as a writer. So you have to do these things instead. I just don't accept that. I don't accept that. And I think, I think there's a lot of people out there who like going to things like that because it gives them an excuse. It, it lets them say, well, why should I even try to do this really difficult thing when it's so impossible anyway? You know, I think we should 
have more faith in ourselves. I think we should back ourselves. We should be more confident about our abilities and our talent. I love Mindy Kaling's memoir, which is called Why Not Me? And that is what she asks herself. Like these things do happen. Why shouldn't they happen to me? Why shouldn't they happen to me? Catherine, I love it. This is this is actually I'm just gonna I'm actually gonna play you back. I don't usually this positive first thing on a Thursday morning. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought it to because we need it, you know. Um okay, talk to me about ambitions that are left for you, personal ambitions, anything else. Like you're you're very single-minded. You thought you you sort of say to yourself, I want to do X, Y, or Z. What else do you want to do? What are you in your life looking ahead to? I have to say that even though 2020 has been the worst year for many, many people, maybe for the world in general, like it has been a good year for me. Like the thing I can't talk about happened. And I've already you know, talked about it. It's fine. I've already. No, talked. you haven't. No, you <laughs> don't, be get, don't be getting me in trouble. Okay. Um, but that has happened. There's, you know, other things like I'm so proud of the nothing man. It's actually, I'm in a place where I'm sort of saying, what what do I want to do now? Like The Nothing Man is the number one bestseller here. I suppose my ambitions are to do with, you know, what every author wants. You want the, the Sunday Times in the UK bestseller list and you want to be a Richard and Judy book club pick and, and that kind of, you know, very small specific things, but they add up to just being, you know, a successful writer. What I would really like is you know, when people think of Irish crime writers, they think of me. And I would like to have as many readers as I possibly can. And I would like to get to continue to do this. And I, I just hope I get to write the books that I have in my head. And honestly, beyond that, you know, what else can I ask for? Like, I feel like I have really achieved a lot of the things that I set out to. And um, the reality of it didn't always look the way it did in my imagination back when I was, you know, in my bedroom fantasizing about these kinds of things. But I, I'm in a very happy place. And I think I'm in a place where I have to start asking myself, you know, what do I want now? What new goals? Um, what about in your non-writing life? I mean, do you feel like you apply the same kind of determination to things outside of work? Absolutely not. I, I like single-minded is the thing. Like everything is about this. And Everything has had to be about this because it's only in the last year or so that I got to where I wanted to be. So, I, I mean, things things that are sort of seem to be standard for other like I, I don't want to have children, so that is not that is not um, on my list. But you know, other things. What I do want is I want more balance in my life, and I want um, to, you know, I suppose I want to have a fuller life. But it's only now that I've even begun to think about those things because I have been so single-minded heading towards this goal. And I don't regret that one single bit. Catherine, that's what was important to me. Whenever, whenever I hear someone, especially a woman, saying they don't want children, I always really want to ask them about it more because I think it's something we don't hear enough of if you so it's a kind of a little personal thing of mine I have two kids but I do not think that that is something that every woman should be expected to do just because they happen to have maybe the equipment to do it right so could you please if you don't mind indulge me on that because I'm sure there's people listening who also don't want to have children but feel they can't say that out loud as women so there's a part of me that wishes I didn't have to expand on that but I understand where you're coming from so I and I totally will Thank no you. one in any of my books has children um and that is very very on purpose because you know and this is something that kind of we won't get into a rant about literary fiction versus genre fiction and how it's treated in this country but just to say you know, if you're looking for representations of your own life, like I don't find that in literary fiction. I, I, I have a book on my shelf over there called Olive, which came out recently, which I believe is about a woman who doesn't want children. I'm very much looking forward to it. But I have to turn to crime to see women who are not, you know, uh, not having children and not having the sort of standard that society expects and and I am trying to make a place in my books for women like me to see themselves reflected in it I used to say like you know I don't want children and you know for this that and the other reason because I felt like I had to justify it but these days I say I don't want children for the exact same reason I don't want any 
anything else I don't want. So like, I don't want to join the army because I don't want to join. It's not something that I want. So therefore I don't want children just because I don't want to do that. There's nothing about it that appeals to me. Um, and that's that. And I, I remember seeing an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert years ago where she talked about, I think it was to Oprah, you know, the moment she realized like, oh, that's not for me. That's just not what I want to do. And, you know, I, I feel, I used to feel confident about it, but now I do feel confident in saying I don't want them because I don't want them. It is just the exact same. I feel the same way about all the other things I don't want to do. <laughs> Thank you for going there. And I know that you shouldn't, I don't think you should have to either. And I understand why it's a little bit maybe. But I understand why yeah. we need to just, yeah, because I think it should be as valid as wanting to. That's that's where I come from. And I think it's fantastic that you are in your work representing that, you know, and I hadn't noticed that or realized that it's really interesting to hear you say it. So yeah. anyway, that's all I wanted you to speak about it, because I think it should be a choice. It should be something that's not just something women do, because yeah. it, it isn't something every woman should do, you know, and um, there's there's the things about people having children and regretting it and stuff like that, which isn't talked about a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think it's- I would also just say I'm not like a fundamentalist about this. Like, don't come back and kill me if five years down the line I've changed my mind. But we're getting to the point now where, you know, it, it, the window is closing. And I'm not at all concerned about that because, you know, when I was younger, I used to think like, should I do something I don't want to do now? in case I do want to do it later and that is completely it's just insane to me and my god I hate men that they don't have to think about that but I am I'm so sure now that you know I used to have this little cheesy uh you know motto framed on my wall that I think I bought in Dunn's for like 10 euro that said uh she designed the life she wanted to live and that's how I feel like I feel like I have gotten everything almost exactly the way I wanted to and I've done it myself like I have made this for myself and whatever I want it's perfectly valid that my life can look that way brilliant I do I think you're amazing the book is brilliant and I can't wait to read your lockdown one do you have a title for it yet no <laughs> And, on my and, computer, it's untitled lockdown novel at the moment. Good. And hopefully we'll hear very soon about your big news that you can't talk about. Oh, right. it could be tomorrow. It could be next year. You know, it's okay. that kind of, I have no control and I'm uh, probably already in trouble for saying. Yeah, I know. But huge congratulations, Catherine, on everything you've done and on your sort of naked ambition which is is a great thing and and also for um for putting out that idea that writing is something that people can actually make a living from and not have to be mired in negativity and you know all that kind of lonely garish writing and all that sort of stuff anyway it was really a pleasure to talk to you and thank you very much thanks Thanks so much i really appreciate the invite thank you bye Thanks so much to Catherine Ryan Howard. I really couldn't recommend the book more highly for a distraction and escape from these pandemic times. It's called The Nothing Man and that's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.